Welcome to this eighth installment of Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandok. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Before we get to our main event, I want to make a few short announcements. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernardine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Uh, you will be able to ask questions today using the chat feature in Zoom. Please chat, send your questions to Peter Cunningham. Peter will forward them to our moderator, Dr. Alan Culp, who will present them to the speaker. Peter is Associate Director of the Bernardin Center, and Alan is a professor of religion at Baldwin Wallace University and a member of the ITMS Board of Directors. For best results, I recommend that you watch today's presentation in speaker view. Finally, please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Michael W. Higgins. Michael is a native of Toronto, an author, scholar, Vatican Affairs Specialist for the Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail, papal commentator for the CTV network, CBC radio documentarian, columnist, scholar, educator, and academic administrator. He has served as president and vice chancellor of two Canadian Catholic universities and is currently the principal of St. Mark's College and president of Corpus Christi College, both at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. He is a former president of the International Thomas Merton Society and has edited, co-authored, and authored scores of books, including two on Merton. Heretic Blood, The Spiritual Geography of Thomas Merton, and The Unquiet Monk, Thomas Merton's Questing Faith. Several of his books have been translated into French, German, Norwegian, and Italian, and many have won awards and been national bestsellers. Over the years, Michael has been a columnist on media matters, literary issues, and American Catholicism for a variety of newspapers, and is a regular contributor to Commonweal, the Literary Review of Canada, and the Tablet of London. He is the recipient of many awards, including two honorary doctorates and the 2013 Gold Medal for International Radio Documentaries, awarded by the New York Festivals. He is a senior fellow at Massey College at the University of Toronto, an international fellow of the Chester Browning Center for Religion and Public Life at the University of Alberta, and an affiliate graduate professor at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. He is married to Christina, who is a liturgical musician and writer, and they have four adult children. What all of these impressive facts do not capture about Michael is his scintillating personality. He is a charming character full of wit and wisdom. If you ever have a chance to sit with him and raise a pint, don't pass it up. And now it is my pleasure to present to you Dr. Michael W. Higgins speaking on Merton and David Jones, Visionaries Both. Michael. Thank you, Teresa. Very, very kind, very warm. Well, folks, I'm gonna talk a little bit uh, today um, about Thomas Merton and David Jones. Merton was born in 1915 and he died in 1968. David Jones, who may or may not be familiar to you, uh, was born in 1895, which for fin de siècle and late Victorian scholars is a particularly important year because it's the year that Oscar Wilde's play 
the importance of being earnest debuted. It was also the year in which he was um, sent off to jail for various crimes against nature, as the British court would have it at the time. David Jones was born in Kent um, and died in England. As you know, Thomas Merton was born in France and died in Thailand. Um, there is a few years uh, between them. Uh, they were mostly contemporaries, but Merton, much the younger man, of course. Um, he dies in 68 and Jones dies in 1974. They were both implicated in a way by World War I. It defined them minimally in, in uh, Thomas Burton's case, although it most likely contributed to yet another move by his parents out of um, increasingly war ravaged Europe. In the case of uh, David Jones, it was a little more immediate, a little more intense and certainly much more brave. He was actually a soldier, fought in the trenches, was wounded twice uh, in the Battle of the Somme and in the Battle of Ypres. He um, was a member of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. And living out the scars of that war experience was a major force, determinative force in his art and in his faith and, his, and in his understanding of his, of his life. Merton, of course, was not scarred by World War I directly, but uh, given that uh, he, between the Entre-la-Guerre, between the two wars, greatly shaped him and uh, the war experience uh, resulted in his experimental macaronic novel, um, My Argument with the Gestapo, or Journal of My Escape from the Nazis. Both men were converts to Catholicism, both were poets, poets of both short and epic poems. And very importantly, and I'll be talking about this in conjunction with their literary work, they were both visual artists. In Merton's case, uh, Donald Alchin, his old friend, um, a uh, English scholar in Welsh Celticism, if you like, but also in Romanian Orthodoxy, uh, introduced Merton to David Jones, as he did to many of the uh, Welsh writers, in, including the Parson poet Aris Thomas. Um, I had the occasion once when working on a CBC documentary to actually meet Alchin. He was canon prebendary at Canterbury Cathedral at the time, and a deliciously eccentric and fine gentleman with a formidable memory of all kinds of interesting uh, minutiae and characters. I could see easily why Merton would be drawn to him, and indeed why he was drawn to Merton. He became a major conduit of information, names, new people to read, people like Basil Bunting and others. And of course, as those of you uh, deeply familiar with Merton would realize, whenever he got these new names, he went out to devour their writing and was full of enthusiasm, effusive, rarely critical, uh, at least in his initial passion, and uh, voracious in, in uh, swallowing them up, whole or otherwise. Thomas Dilworth, his, in some respects, well, he's certainly the magisterial biographer of David Jones, and they're a very interesting professor, uh, now retired emeritus at the University of Windsor, wrote a marvelous work called David Jones, engraver, soldier, painter, and poet. And in that, he has one reference to Merton that's particularly important for our consideration. He says, the American Trappist Thomas Merton read the anathemata, sometimes uh, pronounced anathemata, uh, there's variations in the spelling and the pronunciation, just before Merton's journey to the East. 
and, as a token of enthusiasm, sent his translation of a prayer of Cassiodorus and promised a letter to follow to Jones. He died before he could write the letter. There are some uh, references or allusions to Merton, uh, to, I'm sorry, to, uh, uh, to Jones in Merton's journals, few, um, virtually none uh, uh, with regard to Jones. And that's a bit, a bit surprising since there are some wonderful points of convergence around some very interesting books and I'll, I'll light on those shortly. Okay, let's begin. I wanna look at Merton and Jones in the context of word and sacrament because in many ways, these are the fundamental rudiments of the Catholic literary or imaginative tradition. Merton and Jones are both rightly celebrated as Catholic makers of the highest order, albeit a little exotic, eccentric, recondite, uh, but in both cases, I think, legitimately visionary. In other words, they're not your ordinary run of the mill artists. But before I turn my attention to their original and not derivative art, let me situate the context. What is at the heart of a deeply sacramental and deeply incarnational understanding of apprehended reality, of lived reality? What is it in the Catholic imagination that allows for the sacralizing of the ordinary, of the discovery of the numinous in the banal? Well, perhaps it is the Sergei Rachmaninoff virtuoso concert pianist and literary wunderkind, Stephen Huff, who put it most arrestingly in the following passage drawn from the Recollections, Pensee, and Intellectual and Cultural Divertimenti found in his book, Rough Ideas, Reflections on Music and More. Here's what Huff says. Faith does not work directly on materials at hand. Whether I play a good concert tomorrow night or whether settings of religious texts I've written are inspired has nothing to do with whether I prayed before or during the process. This relates to an important insight of Catholic spirituality. The entire material world after the incarnation is now forever infused, perfumed with God. This is a step beyond seeing the goodness of creation. Yes, everything is made by God, but after Christ, all that good matter has had hands of benediction extended over it in a new way. After Emmaus, every crust of bread is sacred. After Cana, all water can become wine." End of quote. The Catholic imagination then is shaped by this sacramental perception that I've just read to you by Stephen Hoffman, the pianist, of all that is divinity and enmeshed in the human grace disclosed in nature, all matter suffused with the holy. In addition, these, the Catholic imagination treasures the word, the majesty of language, its revelatory power, its incantatory potential, and its bold yet humble approximation of Logos or the word. The novelist Toni Morrison, Nobel laureate, wordsmith and not unfamiliar with Catholicism, underscored the dangers of a mutilated, diminished discourse when she wrote in her 1996 essay, God Language, of her alarm, and I quote, at the, at the debasement of religious language in literature. 
its cliche written expression, its apathy, its refusal to refuel itself with non-market vocabulary, its substitution of the terminology of popular psychology for philosophical clarity, its patriarchal triumphalism. How can a novelist in a land of plenty render undeserved limitless love the one that passeth all understanding without summoning the consumer pleasure of a lotto win. How does one invoke paradise in an age of theme parks? For both Merton and Jones, the word called out for revivification, languishing in the corridors of commerce and advertising, stripped of authenticity by spin doctors, politicians, and propagandists, the number which in our time seems to be legion. A language rendered limp by dumbing down strategies deployed by vocabulary starved polemicists. It was time to move beyond the discourse. It's time to move beyond the jargon of the lotto win and the theme parks as Morrison would have it. While Merton was addicted to the word, he wrote essays and poems, 10 volumes in fact, translations of Latin and Greek texts, commentaries on Eastern religious figures, introductions and analytical pieces on diverse subjects, biographies, scores of diaries and journals, a novel and a play, social cultural tracts, and a very veritable sea of letters. He looked on in horror as the word, conduit of meaning and truth, was sundered by the new architects of unreason, the many Adolf Eichmanns who neutered language to serve their ideological agendas. Merton, the Cistercian priest and poet, servant of the word and celebrator of words, sacred chanter and profane lyricist, saw in the motif of the Christ Logos a range of poetic possibilities, both inexhaustible and daunting. After all, words create, don't they? They transform, they purify, they exalt, but they also destroy, they corrode, they crumble, and, and they war. Most Americans would have seen over the last four years perfect dramatic illustrations of precisely these sad qualities. For Merton, the word is sacrament, and it's an instrument of insurrection. The Son of God and the Tower of Babel, the bread of life and the sword that destroys. David Jones, visual artist, craftsman, poet, and essayist, was like Merton, a convert to Catholicism, as he indicated earlier, and he shared with the monk from Gethsemane an expansive as opposed to restrictive understanding of sacrament and symbol. There is a story told that when young David overheard his mother ask their family doctor, a Yorkshire Quaker, why Quakers have no sacraments, the doctor replied, well, surely, Mrs. Jones, the whole of life is a sacrament. The mature Jones, both artist and Catholic, easily concurred. These two poets then, Jones and Merton, contemporaries though not in correspondence with each other, were engaged in a similar if discrete task, seeking a fundamental unity in a wildly disparate world and structuring their art, probing with their imagination, multiple tracks of lineage, of intellectual and spiritual provenance, working creatively in the landscape of word 
and in the landscape of sacrament. They were forming in the process a multicultural mosaic of fragments, shards, and snippets, piecing together a poetics of unity, a theological and ontological framework steeped in anthropology, in history, and in myth, which of course constitute the universal narrative. For Merton, it would be best expressed on, in the last poetic work and an epic, the geography of Lugrer. Now this poem consists of surrealistic meditations, prose poems, anti-poems, found poetry, lyrics, Joycean word experiments. It is a wild, eclectic, syncretic testament to Merton's universality of vision. He himself says in this wide, angle mosaic of poems and dreams, I have without scruple mixed what is my own experience with what is almost everybody else's. And those of you who may have dipped into the geography of Lebrere, and it is not arguably the most accessible and the easy of Merton's large canon, um, will find, of course, it's divided into four cantos. Uh, it's a complicated work in that you have to kind of navigate, navigate the numerous allusions, many of them anthropological, many of them historical, building on Merton's increasing interest in the disappearing archaic wisdom of cultures that we need to revive in order for our own technocratic culture to flourish, to recover its humanity. Now, in the case of... Um, Jones, it's a little different. Let me just get that here. Um, Jones's comparable work is something called the anathemata or the anathemata. It's, if anything, even more dense and complicated than Merton's Legre uh, geography of Legre. For no other reason, the footnotes um, will exhaust even the most diligent reader. It's a complex work written in the early 1950s, and it accomplishes something of the same thing that Merton is doing in the geography of Legrere. Let me quote just briefly, so you get a taste of the sound of um, Jones's writing. In his lengthy preface, and it's a lengthy preface, a good chunk of the book, um, he explains what in fact he's going to be doing. In this way, it's very much resonant of Eliot, T.S. Eliot's uh, poem, uh, the, uh, the Wasteland in the mid-1920s. Here's what Jones says, speaking about the anathemata. In a sense, the fragments that compose this book are about or around and about, well, matters of all sorts, which by a kind of quasi-free association are apt to stir in my mind at any time and as often as not in the time of the mass. The mental associations, liaisons, meanderings, to and fro, the ambivalences, the asides, the sprawl of the pattern, if pattern there is, these thought trains, or some might reasonably say trains of distraction and inadvertence, have been as often as not initially set in motion, shunted or buffered into near sidings or off to far destinations by some action or word, something seen or heard during the liturgy. The liturgy is so key to understanding uh, Jones that it's, it's hard to ap appreciate the plenitude of his symbols and his uh, poetic vision without a, a deep familiarity with Roman Catholic liturgy. 
A little later on, and again, this is a, a perfect example of how it links up with uh, Laguerre, he makes the following observation, which I think is uh, pretty apposite. What I have written has no plan, or at least is not planned. If it has a shape, it is chiefly that it returns to its beginning. It has themes and a theme, even if it wanders far. If it has a unity, it is that what goes before conditions, what comes after and vice versa. Rather, as in a longish conversation between two friends, where one thing leads to another, but should a third party hear fragments of it, he might not know how the talk had passed from the cultivation of cabbages to Melchizedek, king of Salem. Though indeed he might guess, which means I fear that you won't make much sense of one bit unless you read the lot. And that's pretty well what you have to do. And the same thing with the geography of Lagrera, you have to read the lot. Let it seep into your imagination, not try to figure out every illusion, not try to parse every word. It would be an exhausting exercise and ultimately intellectually defeating. But one first of all has to do is enter into the language or the language enter into your imagination, carry you with its flow, with its illusions, with its assonances, with its resonances, with its shimmerings. This is important, I, I think, to consider again that near the end of their life, well, not quite in the case of, of uh, Jones, it would be several years before he died, but in the case of Merton, it was, of course, an incomplete fragment, the geography of Lagrare, that these great poetic works tell us something more than just simply the complexity of their mind, more than just simply the highly layered sophistication of their imagination and its refinement. They tell us something about their questing and spiritual turmoil struggles and effort to alchemize sacrament, and symbol and image and art into a very important rite of discovery. Merton had read, oh, um, Merton, so just drawing on this, for Merton, um, these particular cantos in the geography of Agrair went to diverse sources um, dealing with very, uh, interesting histories of that go to the heart of anthropology, cultural, social, and political, and allow us to see, for instance, something about the ghost dances, something about um, the great traditions in um, Central America that have been destroyed, uh, the Zapotec, the Toteca, uh, the Mayans. Um, it all an effort to recover those lost voices in which at one point in Ishi means man, he calls archaic wisdom. Well, Mer what Merton is doing, Jones has done already a couple of decades early, and it may well be, although we have no evidence of it because he never got a chance to write that letter to Jones that he was going to write because he died in Thailand, that he would have outlined or articulated in detail what it is that his work, the geography of Legrere, in many ways the culmination of a sophisticated, evolving, but post-lyric poetic um, is not dissimilar from the great enterprise that um, Jones had been engaged in and that received its culmination in 1952. Merton had read the Anathemata and he noted that in this very Catholic epic, Jones, and I quote, this is what he says in one of his diaries, says everything. It has the sap and solidity of Romanesque sculpture. 
Well, this might seem a strange excursus to talk of these two poets like Merton and Jones as if they are of rarefied literary interest for our time and acquired taste for scholars and readers of highly elusive modernist poetry with little or no connection with the larger Catholic tradition. But it would be wrong to conclude such. They represent the living fecundity or fertility of Catholic thought, the plenitude of the tradition itself, its deep sources, its compelling vision, because what these two intricate mythopoetic epics, the Anathemata and Le Guerre, have in common is the sacramental vision, a vision that both poets inherited from their reading of Jacques Maritain's art and scholasticism, a common text, a kind of an ur text for both of them wherein they discovered that art is by its nature gratuitous and that the signs and symbols that are its vocabulary invest life with an intellectual and poetical quality, a form of epiphany. Merton and Jones open our minds and our hearts to such epiphanies, to such joy, but they were also visual artists. Uh, for many of you, of course, uh, thanks to the work that uh, Paul Pearson has done and to the original volume, the collection of the photographs that John Howard Griffin put together called A Hidden Wholeness, we have some deep awareness of Merton's photographic imagination, his ability and natural skill to capture in a still something that has the, its in, innate plenitude revealed to us, even if only for uh, an, effort, an, effortless, an evanescent instant. Also, we have his calligraphies. And the people, if you want to put it that way, his book uh, reads on the unspeakable. And these calligraphies, which are, can be found throughout the book, he comments on near the end. And I want you just to listen here to see again an extraordinary moment of creative and spiritual convergence in art and in technique, in which Merton is talking about these and at the same time, Jones is talking about something similar that he makes. For Merton, he says, these calligraphies, well, these are signs that lay claim to little more than a sort of crude innocence. They desire nothing but their constitutional freedom from polemic, from apologetic, and from program, and indeed, one would suspect, from criticism. These abstractions, and again, you can see them on the cover of... Um, of the raids on the unspeakable, these abstractions, one might call them graffiti rather than calligraphies. They are simple signs and they're ciphers of energy, acts or movements intended to be propitious. Their meaning is not to be sought on the level of convention or indeed of concept. These are not conventional signs as are words, numbers, hieroglyphs, or symbols. In a world cluttered and programmed with an infinity of practical signs and consequential digits referring to business, law, government, and war, one who makes such nondescript marks as these is conscious of a special vocation to be inconsequent, to be outside the sequence, and to remain, however, firmly alien to the program. So these summonses to our awareness constitute a form of aesthetic. They constitute a form of artistic, ethical, and religious disruption. They, they rip us out from the ordinary linear way in which we understand art. They force us to think about things differently precisely because they have no explicit 
or controlled agenda. For um, uh, Jones, he was engaged in something somewhat similar, similar with uh, a work or a particular kind of artistic work that is comparable to the calligraphies, although I would, I, I would suggest much more integrated and accomplished artistically, something called his inscriptions. Now, here's an example of them. You can see them. He wrote these or crafted them uh, and gave them as, as gifts to friends. So someone's having a baptism, somebody's getting married, somebody gets a new job, somebody retires or whatever, they would get one of these cards. Many of them have the wit to save the cards because they saw this uh, yet another instance of the late artistry of David Jones. This comes quite late. Again, he calls them inscriptions. And what they are is, a, as you would have seen, a careful um, collab um, concatenation, if you like, of words from different languages, the lettering different, um, uh, Gothic and Roman. He was particularly always drawn to Roman font, always drawn to Roman history, uh, pre-Christian Roman history and Christian Roman history. Um, it, they're, they're extraordinary. And these inscriptions, again, are ciphers. They're invitations uh, to awareness. They're arresting in their careful and calculated beauty. And it is careful and calculated. Here's what he says about them. Although uh, Jones liked to refer to them as, a, as my form of abstraction, almost exactly the same language Merton was using. And so, unlike some of the later figurative drawings that are overburdened with elusive detail, and unlike my fragments of an attempted writing, as I described in the Anathemata, the, the best are highly compressed works. They're resolved and they're complete unto themselves. They surely count among my finest achievements as a visual artist, and indeed they do. Here's another example of them. And again, you can see the Latin scripting, okay? And also occasionally some Welsh. By suppressing syntax and combining French and English, I understand that I'm going to ensure the reader that the words are in a manner anticipate a polyglot painted inscription itself. The inscribing of these texts are not pre-planned. They're not systematic. I said earlier that there's a calculated artistry to them. That's true, but the intention is not systematic. And in that, again, like Merton's ciphers or his summonses of awareness, his calligraphies. Instead, each one of these inscriptions involves a fresh meditative act that gives rise to variations in the shape and spacing of each letter. And so their forms, invitations that bring us into the mysterium. And this is quite important for quite a number of reasons, because in these inscriptions, you often also have something that he's doing that you're going to see in the poems, both Merton's poetry and his uh, other writing, particularly his novel, but also in correspondence with Robert Lacks. And that is his love of anti-language, his gift for what is called macaronic writing in which you draw freely from different languages. And one minute you're particularly giddy and another minute you're dealing with uh, the provenance of a particular word or its, or its root or something. And sometimes you invent the words, they become uh, specific to you, they, they create a new voice. Um, and in this massive array of attitude and change, sometimes reverential, sometimes not, sometimes giddy, as I said, sometimes with a kind of 
heavy gravitas, but rarely that, especially in the anti-letters with uh, Robert Lacks. It's all fun, sporting, satire, parody, all these things. But what do they do? They break us out of the ordinary apprehensions, the way we perceive the world in our common conventional mode. They force us to see differently. The inscriptions, like the ciphers or summons of awareness, the calligraphies, the macaronic language, the anti-letters, all this in a way suggests a new relationship with the word, with the image, and very importantly, with reality. Merton and Jones open our minds to all these epiphanies. And as strange as it may sound in our utilitarian, frantic and credential obsessed times, it is joy that is an essential component of Catholic life and imagination. This joy is not an easy and glib feeling of happiness. It is not a transient glow. It is an intuition, a deep feeling of connectedness with a vital pulsating tradition. That tradition is encompassing. That tradition is meaning generating. It is holistic. Seamus Heaney, the Irish Nobel laureate and literature encapsulate, encapsulates it nicely when he says the following, near the end of his life, actually. Catholicism has given me the right to joy. People talk about the effects of a Catholic upbringing in sociological terms, repression, guilt, prudery. What isn't sufficiently acknowledged is the radiance my um, radiance of Catholicism. It gave everything in the world a meaning. It brought a tremendous sense of being, of the dimensions of reality of things that never quite vanishes. The older I get, the more I remember the benedictions of it all, end of quote. Now this is beautifully crafted, of course, it's, it's Seamus Heaney. But what is also interesting is that it comes not from somebody who is, we would call traditionally devout. Um, he wasn't, uh, he, his relationship with Catholicism certainly wasn't as tortured as James Joyce's or some of his other Catholic contemporaries alienated from the church's um, hegemonic control. No, uh, in many ways, uh, as a Northern Irishman um, who struggled for identity and who rose to the highest levels of literary uh, success, whether at Harvard University or whether at Trinity or writing his poetry or indeed accepting the Nobel Prize. In all of this, he still remembered that there were things that were sifted through his imagination that came into his heart, into his blood, that pulsated within him which was also Catholicism. Not a Catholicism of repression or intellectual fear, not a Catholicism narrow or truncated, but a Catholicism that was a benediction. In fact, it was a benediction, he says, which is in the end a radiance, shimmering edges of things. In an important way, Jones and Merton bring us through their own Catholic imagination through their own visionary, and that's the underlying subtitle of the night's talk, through their own visionary effort to bring word and language and art and image, the visual with the oral, 
the great traditions that shape us with the impinging realities of our own time. They bring us carefully, sometimes not so carefully, sometimes grudgingly, sometimes with a certain kind of urgent violence into a new awareness, into a new awareness of the numinous, into a new awareness of our humanity. Isn't in a way that what art does, take sacrament and word, logos and image, bring them together in an exciting, creative, often unsettling, but always in the end, illuminating fusion. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Michael. Um, I'm always tempted just to wait for the audience to clap, which is we've got one, one symbol of <laughs> well, that. I wonder, Alan, if I, I, I jumped right into the text, I forgot the opening prayer. So let me... <laughs> well, it can be a closing prayer. <laughs> can I use it as the concluding prayer to my talk? Because it kind of fits nicely, then I'll stop. Indeed, it, let's do. It's a prayer about the creative arts. Divine artist, source of all that is beautiful and true. You have given us a world overflowing with light and color, with melody and rhythm, with shapes and textures and movement and story. You have planted in human beings the seeds of creativity and imagination so that we may respond wholeheartedly to your gifts. Thank you for the work of artists, musicians and writers who co-create with you to draw our gaze beyond our limited perspective. Thank you for the way in which the arts open our minds and our hearts, leading us closer to you. Help us to use our talents wisely and generously for the good of all, because in the end, may all that we create give glory to you and be a source of our continuous joy. Amen. Well, that was good, whether or not it was at the beginning or the end, so thank you. <laughs> Well, it's my wife. It's a poem from my wife's um, collection of creative prayers for meetings that was published a couple of years ago. And I, I, I just find it in, a, in this kind of a context, it kind of nicely encapsulates what I'm going to say. And it's kind of not only a precinct, it's probably a better, more condensed way of saying what took me 40 minutes to say. Well, it's nice to have the summary after we had the whole thing. So. <laughs> You're too kind, Alan. I, I love I love listening to you, Michael. It's like a linguistic journey into a land of mystery that's simultaneously revealing amazing insights. So um, I, I really appreciate it. We have a few questions. And for me, the, the joy is always trying to figure out which ones to ask in our time. Um, early on, you said something that piqued my imagination because it's about imagination. And then Bonnie Thurston said in a great quotation, which articulates my question even better. You talked about a Catholic imagination that was shaped by sacra that, sh that shapes by sacramental perception. And then uh, I was wondering at that point, and Bonnie asked the question, well, why limit the sacramental imagination to Roman Catholicism? Oh, right. Wouldn't this be true to all Christian sacramental traditions? Absolutely, particularly those within the identifiable apostolic tradition, certainly in Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, High Lutheranism. There are so many wonderful examples where the sacrament plays this role. I think um, in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, which is a little different, 
is the organic thinking about this, how it's been integrated um, throughout the centuries, particularly post Aquinas. And it's again, not insignificant to note that in the case of both Jones and Merton, they go back to Jacques Maritain, they go back to Arles Scholastique, but they also go to creative art and intuition and uh, another uh, major work in aesthetics by Maritain. Um, and in the case of, um, of, of Jones, it's especially relevant because here's Merton working with his Thomism, um, using uh, Maritain's work to help explain uh, Blake when he's working on his master's thesis at, at Columbia. And of course, he became a great friend with Maritain. I mean, Maritain came to visit him. Uh, they shared uh, their work. He helped to translate the, uh, the poetry of uh, Jacques' um, mystic wife, Raisa Maritain. He also translated part of a journal. And um, when uh, Jacques was prepared to publish uh, his Le Pezon de la Garonne, his great um, attack on the council, really, anti-hardism, uh, Merton tried to, tried to mitigate that. And uh, uh, Maritain, of course, went on to, I think, to some degree, rue the fact that he published that. And, and then the end of his life published a wonderful work on the humanity of Jesus. But what is it, 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 it interesting in, in this is that the Thomistic connections that Merton has, which he never leaves, by the way, Merton never abandons his Thomism, is at the heart of his philosophical uh, world understanding. Um, what you find in Jones is very much the same, except it's not, although he reads Merton, it's not so much mediated through Merton as it's mediated through Eric Gill and that whole ditchling community of artists and sculptors and weavers and whatnot, a kind of a 20th century Catholic version of William Morris's movement in the late 19th century, the arts and crafts movement, and uh, bringing together philosophy, theology, and the arts, making it. And when the, in the act of making, drawing on the um, aesthetics and epistemology of, um, of Thomas Aquinas, again, building on how that's been mediated to contemporary audiences through Maritain and to some degree Gilson, but mostly Maritain, um, gives it a very specific Catholic coloration. But you're absolutely right. You can't limit the sacramental imagination to the Roman dispensation. But the Roman history and its wealth of um, thinkers and crafters and artists and whatnot give it a special luster, I think. And certainly in the case of Jones and in the case of Merton, um, it, finds it finds special articulation. Great. It's a very long-winded response to the question, but it's a very good question. Well, I always tell people, as long as it's interesting, we'll let you go. Okay. <laughs> so, um, just so we don't forget it, and I think this is an important one. Can you tell us where we would find that poem that you read at the end from your wife? Oh, yes. I'm always happy to do this because I'm not incapable of shameless self-marketing on my own part. So why not include the entire, entire domestic enterprise? It's called Living, uh, Inviting God, Simple Creative Prayers for Meetings by my wife, Christina Higgins. And it's published in Canada by Novalis and in the United States by 23rd Publications. It's uh, done quite well. They're really well-crafted poems, I think, because Christina's own training is a, she's a, a classical musician but also did graduate work in literature. So she brings her, her uh, literary interests and her uh, musical interests to come together to kind of fuse, uh, I think quite creatively in, in the way she's worked out her Ignatian spirituality over the years. And you can see that stamp in this book. Great, thank you. 
There's another place where you, you said clearly that joy is central to Catholic life and imagination. And the first thing I remembered was um, a couple, three speakers ago, Christine Boken uh, highlighted joy when she was working with New Seeds of Contemplation. And uh, so it must be true if you and Christina think that's, that's <laughs> central to Catholic She's life. She's my mentor. Um, but why joy? Why is joy central to the Catholic life and imagination? And and she was quoting some passages from New Seeds, so clearly Merton is on to joy. So can you tell a little about why that theme emer emerges as central? Well, I think, of course, um, joy is, again, not to be confused with uh, something which is uh, uh, giddy and passing and frivolous. And um, uh, joy is constitutive of, of life, of, of the way you perceive your relation to creation. Um, joy sustains you in times that are not especially objectively joyous, right? But your joy is a perspective. It's a it's a Weltanschauung. It's a worldview, and it, it it's in, engaged in that special realization of the um, uh, Felix Hofer that you know this is the great failing that actually produces our salvation. That the Paschal mystery is based on a series of stunning uh, paradoxes, that the Christian life and Christian spirituality itself is a form of paradox. Well, one of the ways in which paradoxes is best communicated is through joy. I mean, if you look at the writings of some of our great uh, Christian writers, and well, C.S. Lewis, of course, talks about surprise by joy, and he means by joy, something exactly in the way I'm talking about it, even though it's also, it, it's, it's his wife's name, Joy Davidson. Uh, surprised by joy is a form of divine entry into, into one's life. I, I, I often think of Merton's experience at um, Fourth and Walnut as a moment when joy showed its face to him. And, and, and then becomes a defining, a determinative feature of your theological view, of your relationship to the world that no matter what, how things play out, the turmoil, the turbulence of life and structures and whatnot, you're governed by a perspective which is more transcendental. Um, and I don't mean, again, this to say, you know, it's atemporal, it rejects the world, it's, you know, another variation of contemptus mundi. No, by no means. What it is, a, is a, a, a principally celebratory, approach to life, its gifts, and the gratuity of matter. You, there are various ways in which we can respond to life, right? And one of them, one of them is, of course, is to rejoice, is, is to celebrate, is to celebrate the given, uh, life itself, matter, the richness and plenitude of creation, uh, the surprises that come to us in the sound of a, of a concert, a particular note in a symphony, a particular line in a, in a quartet, any number of different things that surprise us. And I, I think that's the brilliance of C.S. Lewis's um, uh, autobiographical title is, is we often are surprised by this. We're often surprised by the joy that animates it, that sustains us. So I think um, joy is grounded in hope, of course. It's grounded in a celebratory approach to life. And you even find it in the darkest places. I mean, some of the really quite remarkable journals that are kept by uh, Jewish mystics and uh, others in concentration camps, in uh, Belsen, in Auschwitz. Um, 
in Dachau, in any number of these camps, and you, you often come across particular passages of stunning luminosity. You think, how is it possible to be able to see the light in such oppressive darkness? Well, that's a mode, that's how joy communicates itself. It's a mode of being rather than just some kind of happy feeling. It's a mode of being present to the world. And that's why I think that uh, Aquinas talks about this as well. So it's nothing particularly unique to, to Merton and Jones, but in their art, um, they, they, they seek to give delight. Joy provides delight. Art delights us. It doesn't cripple us. It doesn't numb us. It delights us. And joy is at the heart of delectation. It's the heart of delight. It's at the heart of celebration. That's what art does. That's great. It provokes me to think that maybe joy is the experience of realized eschatology. So yes, without using that language. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Here's here's an here's a really interesting question from Kevin Burns. Can you say more about Jones and Merton's first or home languages and how this perhaps influences their work? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you mean in their native tongue, is that what you mean? That's what I'm taking it, yes. yes. Um, well, um, in both cases, it's English, right? I mean, Merton is born in France and he becomes in so many ways Gallican, right? As we realize again and again, his fluency in the language, his ability to enter into the imagination of um, the French cultural world, the French intellectual world. Just think of his numerous essays on Camus. Um, so there are all kinds of ways in, in, in which French is um, his language, but of course, is the language of the family is, is 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 English, and he writes in English. But he's an extraterritorial writer, right? I mean, he he knows several languages, either those which he can speak or those in which he has a uh, reading knowledge, uh, polyglot, and he's he's capable of entering into that linguistic world, of being unhoused in his own in order to be housed in another language, when he translates from Latin, or when he translates from the French, or when he translates from um, Portuguese, when he's doing this Brazilian translation, or uh, the Central American poets. In the case of Jones, it's very interesting, because although Jones is Welsh, and although Jones is steeped in the Welsh tradition, and it's so essential to understanding its history and its background, he never actually spoke Welsh. Um, he found it a very difficult language. He was brought up in England and um, he identifies with the Welsh, but he, he it, it's, it's, uh, and he identifies with the great wealth myths and, and epics and the great wealth Welsh saints of which there are many, <laughs> most of whom we don't know and many of whom we can't pronounce their names, but that there is a, a very rich Welsh uh, tradition. They're Celts, right? Like the, um, like the Manx and the Scots and the Irish and the Breton, they're, they're, they're Celts. They're part of that Celtic world, that Celtic imagination, but they have their own language and they have their own myths as well. And um, uh, Jones was greatly drawn to that world and he, he pictured it in language and an image. But again, he, he wrote in English. Um, oh, and he was uh, comfortable in Latin and as in, in relation to the inscriptions, as I said, you, they're mostly uh, Latin, occasionally Greek and English, sometimes even a little Welsh. But his familiarity with Latin actually was greater than his familiarity with Welsh. His familiarity with the Welsh tradition, so deeply appropriated, 
spoke to both his heart and to his spirituality. Thank you. Charles Mason would, Matson would like to know who were the favorite poets of Merton and Jones? Oh, well, uh, I don't want to belabor this because God knows I've belabored it over the years. Uh, Blake, <laughs> Blake is a key figure for both of them. Um, Henry Vaughan, the great 17th century Welsh mystical poet is part of that metaphysical tradition you have to her and then earlier on you have Herbert and, and of course Dunn and whatnot, but they're slightly different. But the, the mystical tradition that you find in, in, in Bonn is especially appealing to them both. And again, it's that uh, Blakean uh, tradition, which is visionary. It's, a vis it's the English paradise tradition of visionaries. So they're drawn to Blake. Now, that's a very important question, actually, because when you look at the relationship of their visual art to their poetry, it, you can't help but think of Blake. Because of Blake, of course, was a, was a great painter and he was an engraver. And his paintings and his work stand in relation to his art. So when you're reading the great poetic works, uh, Book of Job, uh, Jerusalem, the Four Zoas, and whatnot, you have their beautiful, eccentric, odd, quirky, but undoubtedly uh, hypergenius works of stunning singularity. I mean, nobody, nobody paints like Blake. Um, you have you enter into his into his mythic world both through listening to the language, but also through seeing these stunning representations of these mythic figures that he, that in many ways parallel the Christian and Hebraic scriptures, scriptures okay? Merton too, now in Merton's case, of course he dabbled in cartoons, some of them deliciously erotic when he was in uh, university, um, uh, but mostly it's the calligraphies and the, and the photography that we think of when we talk about his work as a visual artist. It, it obviously didn't play exactly the same role that it did in the case of Jones. Jones was uh, perhaps better known as a, as a visual artist than a, than a poet, although that, that shifted depending on, the, depending on the, uh, the viewer, depending on the reader. Uh, in Merton, Merton's case, of course, it is important, again, I think, and, and can never be understated, um, the powerful influence of Blake in the shaping of Merton's imagination. Uh, Blake was very important for his father, who was an artist in, in the tradition of Cezanne, but Blake was very important. And in Merton's first introduction to Blake, doesn't come from Mark Van Dorn or anybody on the Columbia University campus. It actually comes from his father. So his interest in Blake actually precedes his interest in Catholicism. And Blake is a very, is a very strange, unorthodox character. I mean, theologically, he's Swedenborgian, but he, he, he breaks outside the tradition. I mean, we can't, we, I mean, some scholars like to identify him as either early romantic, late romantic. He's not really either. He's, he's Blake. And, but Blake's had a huge influence on the visual imagination of various writers and actors over the centuries since his death. And Merton and Jones embody that visionary mode of, of seeing. So, so Blake is critical to them both. Um, there were um, other writers that they shared in common. One of them, and I, I, I didn't have time to mention this, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad this question came up, is, is not so much uh, a poet, but a shared interest in um, a particular event that was um, uh, cataloged in the early 1960s by an anthropologist in the States dealing with the last of a particular Shoshone tribe uh, called Ishi. Ishi means man. Merton wrote an essay about this. And in fact, there were a series of four essays that uh, were compiled in the volume called Ishi means man. 
And Ishii is the last of his tribe. And with his death, and this would have been in the 1960s, with his, well, that's at least when the book was written, with, with Ishii's death, the, you, there's no memory of the culture. The culture is extirpated. Um, but it's not just simply the loss of that culture. It's a loss of us. We lose something. And for Merton, the recovery of archaic wisdom, that, that wisdom can be found in cultures that have been conquered, suppressed, dissipated, uh, exterminated, that wisdom needs to be recovered because our humanity depends upon it. Well, lo and behold, Jones is similarly moved by this book, and he talks at great length about it. And he comes to many of the same conclusions that Merton does, and he takes some of its insights and moves it into some of his own literary writing. Um, and so you can see that Ishii was a figure that spoke to them both about the necessity of recovering a deeper wisdom that's beyond scientific and technological wisdom. And unless we recover that wisdom and work within that wisdom in the context of Blake's creative contraries, we will see ourselves diminished both in human terms and in spiritual terms. We need the ancients just as much as we need the contemporaries. And we tend to forget that and we've wiped out their cultures in many cases. That's why uh, Merton becomes increasingly obsessive about this. It is in their prose writings and his poetry. What have we lost when we lose this archaic wisdom? Well, amazingly, almost at the same time, Jones is experiencing the same thing. Okay? So I, I would say there are various points of convergence. Um, their love of the great uh, uh, mythical writings, um, their um, attraction to certain uh, English writers. Um, Edward Muir, for instance, the great Scots writer, um, has a particular appeal to both of them. Um, they're again, you know, drawn to some common great iconic figures, if you like, in the Catholic tradition, like Dante. Um, but in, in both cases, I think, um, although I've been making, uh, I think, a fairly strong, if not persuasive, but certainly strong case about their Catholic imagination, that Catholic imagination is both with an uppercase and a lowercase c. Uh, they saw themselves as any real artist would, uh, dealing with a universal reality rather than any limited one. But you see the universal through, of course, the particular. Thank you. And before I ask my last question, uh, a word of thanks for a tip of the hat to the to the Yorkshire Quaker doctor who gave it. <laughs> I a figured you would get that one as a lifelong Quaker. A good I put that the, in there for you, Alan. To the uh, Quaker view on sacramental theology. So um, intrigued by the idea. At one point, you talked about letting language into the imagination, and I wondered: is that like? the Lexio Divina in any sense, letting language into the, the letting language into imagination. Well, does that relate to Lexio Divina? Yes, I, do, I think it does. I mean, that's not quite what I was thinking, but that's exactly what it does do. I mean, um, we don't take a, a language, I think, as seriously as we should until we realize how it's been corrupted. Um, I don't want to get particularly political, uh, but being an outsider, even though I lived in the United States for over 10 years, I'm kind of also part of the American experience, I like to think. 
Um, the last four years of, a, of American life has seen a coarsening of language without equal. And when a language uh, is coarsened and we become numb to its beauty, then language has been suborned or produced or rendered inconsequential because its purpose is merely to disinform or to outrage or to incite. Then we all suffer because we're language bearing creatures and we're defined by language. Language makes us, language shapes us. And so language is sacred property. Language in my view is the supreme sanctuary. When you destroy or you corrupt language, uh, then all the other values so deeply dependent upon right flourishing and social harmony crumble with it. Democracy it depends on the right use of language, on the right making of language. And when that disappears, then the clouds, the darkest of clouds settle in. I think Merton and Jones saw that in their own time. They saw what happens when a language is corroded from within, when it's suborned uh, to use for some other devious purpose, when language becomes the enemy of truth. And I think as a consequence, language for them, is a, uh, art for them is a way of purging that and recovering something again of the joy of language. Don't we delight when we hear somebody use language beautifully? Think of the extraordinary rhetoric of a Winston Churchill in the British Parliament during the war years. We're all stunned by the power of that language. Or Abraham Lincoln in his great address, okay? The language moves us, not just simply in the terms of its delivery, but in the concatenation of words, in the crafting of that language. Because art, because language is an art. And then we are persuaded, we're deeply moved by that. The absolute opposite of that is language that can incite, arouse, appeal to the our more base instincts. Um, just think of the great um, tyrants, the, the Cadillo, uh, Franco, uh, Mussolini, who was a gifted orator, and of course the supreme rhetorician himself, Adolf Hitler. They could raise, arouse tremendous passion through language. Okay, so language is potent, uh, used to ill effect or corroded, coarsened, suborned, as I say, by villainous, villainous intent, or language that empowers, enriches, brings us beauty, and in the end, joy. Thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. It's all yours, Teresa. All right, thank you, Alan. And uh, thank you so much, Michael. Um, I was very moved by the art of your own language and I realized, I didn't say in my introduction, how remarkably eloquent and erudite you are, but people who have listened to you this evening know that for themselves now. I want to thank you then for being with us and um, given, giving us so much to think about. I want to thank Peter Cunningham at the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union for providing technical support. And Peter was assisted by Franciscan Father Dan Horan, a theologian at CTU and an ITMS board member. Thanks also to Ellen Culp so, for so masterfully moderating the questions. 
to Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, and to Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org slash ITMS. Peter put that up for you um, in the chat earlier. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. And if you're not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. Registration is now open for the June 8th webinar, which will feature the renowned peace activist, Jim Forrest, who counted among his personal friends, Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day. The title of Jim's talk is An Army That Sheds No Blood, Thomas Merton's Response to War. So now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in June.